0: Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. God, we need you. We need you. God, we, we need you. Help us, please. Teach us, please. Transform us, please. Fill us with your spirit, please. Fill us up with truth, please. Move us. For Your name's sake, Lord. For the glory of Your name. That You would be exalted in us and through us. Move with Your power here this morning, please. We need You, God. Would You please have Your way in us? We need You. We look to you in Jesus' name to fulfill our need. Amen. So, as we continue in this series, uh, what we're trying to do is hear teaching from Jesus about Jesus. Good source of information, right? We want to hear from Jesus about Jesus, about ourselves, about the kingdom of God, about what it means to be his disciple, about what it means to be part of his church, his body. Uh, because otherwise, what are we all doing, right? Why are you here this morning if you're not here to hear from Jesus? And I'm not saying if that wasn't your reason to get up and leave. I want you to stay. But I would ask you to adopt that cause, to take on that cause this morning to hear from the Lord Jesus. Not from me, not to hear from a, a man, a well-bearded man, amen. By the way, Justin Hines, all right, can we all just, it's the big naked-faced elephant in the room. If you weren't so handsome, brother, you just wouldn't get away with it, but you are. You just really just look so cute. I'm actually jealous. Honestly, I'm jealous. I told him earlier, uh, I've been wanting to shave my beard for years, but I can't stand in front of you all with this face without this beard on it. You don't want to see that. Like a naked mole rat trying to preach a sermon to you, who knows what lies beneath? Uh, we, we are here to, to hear from Jesus, and so that's, that's why we're here in this passage, and this passage means obviously a lot to the Lord Jesus. He taught it. Uh, it means so much to us, and maybe you don't know why yet it, it should or does mean so much to you. Uh, it means a lot to me for you, for us And so, I I want to uh, spend time understanding what it means to take the yoke of Christ upon us and to find rest for our souls. So, let's seek to do that this morning. The context of what Jesus is teaching here is very important, very important. Uh, Context is always very important, and in this case, it is supremely important to understand what it is that Jesus is saying souls can find rest from, find refuge from, find safety from. What is this thing that has been loading them down, weighing them down, this yoke that's been across their shoulders that they can exchange for a yoke of Christ on their shoulders and find it to be life-giving and rest-giving? What is this thing? Well, in the context you understand that. So, Jesus is in the midst of, uh, of teaching. Uh, he, this isn't his, the only teaching he does. Sometimes he gives these very short sermons or parables or, or illustrations. This is in the midst of a lot of teaching. If you have red letters in your Bible wherever Jesus speaks, you notice a lot of red here. And in the midst of his teaching, he says these things about yokes, about burdens, about rest. But the context here, you notice just before he begins to speak about this, he's calling out woe upon certain cities, warning upon them. If you would look back up at verse 20, he says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of the mighty works had been done because they did not repent, because they did not repent. Anywhere you have a lack of repentance in people who are engaged by Jesus, what you're looking at is a lack of belief in the gospel that he preached. Jesus was proclaiming himself as the way, the truth, the life, the only way to the Father, the resurrection, the spiritual food that they need that will satisfy them forever. And wherever they fail to believe in him, they fail to repent. And these cities had failed to repent and believe in him. So he says, verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now you remember Sodom was the city back in Genesis that God rained down burning fire upon in judgment because of their unrepentant sin. This future day of judgment will be more bearable for Sodom than for these cities who were engaged by Jesus with his gospel, but would not believe and repent. Scary for them, right? Not, Not the place you want to be in relationship to Christ. And then it was at that time that Jesus declared, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared. And he begins by declaring a prayer to the Father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now what he's talking about there is not people who have wisdom like God as wise, but people who count themselves as wise in their own eyes. People who've set themselves up as authorities, as teachers, who claim to know something, who claim to be something. They have the law and they study it and they teach it to others, and yet they completely miss the truth of it. They believe they're wise and understanding, but the Father has hidden the truth of the gospel from them, and instead revealed it to what Jesus calls little children—people who are humble, people who know they're nothing, who know they have need, like a child. A child, when self-aware, understands its need when. When your children, those of you who have children, when your children come to you 73 times a day asking for food, do you know why? Because they know they can't get it for themselves. They need it from you. You're the person who buys it. You're the person who cooks it, if you cook. You're the person who microwaves it, maybe. But in any case, they know they need it from you. They know they have needs. Little children have a natural kind of humility to them and they run to the one that they're looking to to fulfill their needs. So God now, the Father, is hiding certain things from arrogant, unrepentant people and He's revealing things to people who are humble and who know their need. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, verse 26. Your gracious will. None of us, high or low, understanding or foolish, none of us deserves anything from God. And yet it is His gracious will to reveal truth, reveal the gospel, reveal our need and the satisfaction of our need in Christ to people who know their need. Look at verse 27 if there was any doubt at all where the satisfaction of our need comes from, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. We need God. We need God like little children who are completely helpless on our own, and who have this Father who's gracious and loves us and supplies our needs, namely in Christ. We are dependent on Him, on His gracious will to reveal, to feed. Now look at verse 28. In this context of teaching about belief, And unbelief about repentance and unrepentance, humility and pride, thinking yourself something or knowing yourself to be nothing, he says this in verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the context here is you've got people who know they're nothing and people who think they're something. And the people who think they're something in Jesus' time, in his ministry, were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and namely, particularly, the Pharisees. They were the teachers of the law in first-century Israel. They had the words of God and they taught them to the people, and the people were counting on them, they were looking to them to teach them the truth about God, the Old Testament Scriptures, and they only knew what the Pharisees taught them. But the Pharisees had twisted the Scriptures. They were using the Scriptures and their position as teachers to make much of themselves, and they were doing this through what we call legalism. They thought themselves to be something. They set themselves up as a standard of righteousness. And they said, you must be as righteous as we are. See how righteous we are. And if you're not as righteous as us, then you're not acceptable to God. And not only did they twist the Old Testament scriptures, but they added to them. Added traditions and more rules, so much so that it became this intricate web of laws that the people believed to be from God because they were coming through these teachers of the law. And yet it was an impossible, unrealistic, unbiblical burden for them to bear. This was the yoke of the Pharisees. Adding their own traditions and rules to God's law, weighing people down with the burden of keeping an impossibly long list of requirements in order to be accepted by God, the yoke of the Pharisees. A literal yoke, of course, is a wooden bar that's laid across the the shoulders or the neck of an animal that's attached to a plowing cart or a wagon. And, And as that animal moves forward, of course, it pulls the plowing cart or the wagon. And it is this yoke that connects the animal to the farmer or to the traveler so that the animal can carry out his duty he has to carry that yoke in order to fulfill his duty in ancient israel this figurative yoke was the teaching of a teacher whatever his teaching was that was his yoke and he laid that yoke upon his disciples his disciples carried that yoke This was the the instruction of their teacher, and they were, in order to fulfill their duty, their obligations, they believed they had to carry this teaching in order to plow, in order to move forward. The yoke of the Pharisees was legalism. Keep these laws and God will accept you. Break them and God will reject you. Obviously, a burdensome yoke to bear. Now, since this is Jesus' context, since this is the yoke of the Pharisees that Jesus is calling us to lay aside and rest from, let's explore legalism a bit. Uh, honestly, I know this is a familiar topic. Uh, I know that legalism is discussed, and, and for most of us, I think I know most of you well enough to know, for most of us, legalism is something that we point out and we go, oop, nope, staying away from that. But if we were to all search our own hearts, we would find that there are ways that we all are very legalistic. The sneaky thing about legalism is it's a sliding scale. Other people are very legalistic. I'm just right. Right? So let's explore legalism. In fact, I would like to do this. Since there's nothing good about it, There's nothing redeemable about it. Let's do this. Let's just explore all the lies that legalism tells to the human heart. This yoke, this burden, unbearable and heavy. Let's explore the lies of legalism. I've got five of them if you're a note taker, so you can prepare your notepad. The first one. Human effort can produce the holiness of God. This is a lie of legalism. Human effort can produce the holiness of God. You can do things in such a way that you would be found to be acceptable based on your own merit before a holy God. Legalism says human effort can produce the holiness of of God. The second lie, God is willing to accept a person based on an imperfect attempt at holiness. This is a lie. God is not willing to accept anyone based on an imperfect attempt at holiness. God is not looking for people who are just trying. Well, He knows I'm trying. That doesn't make you acceptable before a holy God. This is a lie. Another lie, the third one. God is concerned with the outward appearance, not the heart. Legalism loves to tell you that whatever's happening inside of you is kind of irrelevant as long as you can save face, as long as you can appear to be just, as long as you can appear to be merciful. It doesn't matter what kind of wickedness is swirling inside of you. Just keep yourself under control outwardly, and God will accept you. This is a lie. The fourth lie God can be fooled. God can be fooled. Of course, we know that the third lie is a lie. God is concerned with the heart, not just the outward appearance. So since we know he is concerned with the matters of the heart, do we think we can fool him? Do we think God doesn't know what's in our hearts? Do you ever go a day without sinning in your heart? It's a lie to think that God can be fooled. The fifth lie that legalism tells to the human heart. As long as you are more righteous than most people, God will accept you. Now, here comes the sliding scale, right? Who are you going to point at? Who are you going to judge yourself against? As long as you can find a big group of people who are worse than you, then you're fine. Because God obviously is going to save the better half of humanity, right? It's like there are the good people and the bad people. And as long as you're like, just. Just over the line towards the good people, then you're better than those people. And it's just about being better than most people to be acceptable by God. This is a lie. God's not concerned with the sliding scale of human righteousness. It is all unrighteous before a holy God. Now, th- this isn't just my idea, okay? I I've experienced these lies in my own heart over the years. I've seen them in other people. I've seen them wreck people's lives, ruin people's relationship with God, relationship with others, relationship with a church. But it's not just my perspective or my experience that teaches me that God is holy and nobody else is, and all these lies are lies. Listen to Revelation chapter 15, verse 4. This is the exaltation of people in heaven. Christ revealed as King of kings and Lord of lords, and this is what this great throng of people cries out before him Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. When the righteousness of God is revealed, it is revealed to all of humanity that only God is holy. All of our righteousness will be revealed as what it truly is. Attempts. Failing attempts but God's righteousness will be revealed to be holy. God alone is holy. But legalism doesn't want you to know that. Legalism wants you to think it's possible for you in and of yourself to be holy before a holy God, that you of your own good deeds could become acceptable to him. Or maybe that he's just not concerned with those parts inside you, the inward thoughts and desires. He's not concerned with those unholy things as long as you're holy out here. Legalism is a lie. Human beings, by their own effort, cannot be acceptable to a holy God because human beings, in their own efforts, are unholy. And because of God's holiness, he cannot accept unholiness. If he ever did, he would cease to be holy, and we don't want that. We don't want that, and it's impossible. Praise God. Now, there's two things that legalism does. It lies. It lies about God and it lies about humanity, and we've explained some of these lies, and we've shown that only God is holy. Even if legalism tries to tell you that you can be too in and of yourselves, as the Pharisees taught, you remember Jesus with the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and he said, uh, "Listen, I, I've done everything that I need to do. Is there is there anything that I'm lacking?" Jesus rattles off a few of the commandments, right? And he says, all these things I've done since my youth. Can you imagine Jesus, the one true holy God, standing before this idiot, this human being, who's declaring himself to be holy? All these things I've done since my youth. I've had this nailed down for years, Jesus. Just tell me what i got to do Next. What do I need to add to myself? There's nothing that needs to be removed from me. I'm doing great. I'm killing it. I'm so acceptable to God. But is there something that God would add to me to make me even better? To enhance me? Jesus is standing before this guy. Realizing, no, only God is holy. You aren't holy. And what happens when Jesus gives him something that attacks his heart, not his outward appearance, not this structure he's built for himself that he can really occupy comfortably and keep up appearances. Well, then sell everything you have and come and follow me. Well, he goes away sad. That's too much for him. It's too far. That gets to the heart. His heart was revealed. His righteousness was revealed to be failing. So legalism lies to us. Here's the other thing legalism does. It burdens the soul with an unbearable weight. It burdens the soul with an unbearable weight. It's not just a pack of lies that you could believe and be led astray by or that you could put on someone else and and try to force them to live by. For every soul that undertakes the cause of legalistic righteousness before God, that they will be holy enough to be acceptable to God in and of themselves, it is an unbearable weight. It's clear from Scripture that Jesus is the only man who ever went to heaven based on his own righteousness. Jesus, the God-man, was righteous. Truly Divinely righteous. Because he is God. He is holy as God is holy. But no other human being, no other man has ever entered heaven based on his own righteousness. Galatians 2.16 says, By works of the law, no one will be justified. That's just a declarative statement from Scripture. By works of the law, no one will will be justified. Ephesians 2.8, you probably know it well, for it's by grace through faith that we're saved, not by works so that no one may boast. There is no boasting in any human being before God because we are in need before him. We're not justified based on our own righteousness. But the Pharisees taught that salvation was through good works, as if someone could live a life of God like holiness, so that Revelation 15:4 that we just read would actually have to be revised. They were teaching people that they can live in such a way that God will be impressed by their righteousness and accept them based on their own good works, so that Revelation 15:4 would have to say instead: Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you and Chad, it turns out, are holy. Or, or that God only, well, except for this one guy who just nailed it. Well, except for this one person who was able to really keep it together. But Revelation 15.4 stands forever as the word of God. Unchanging, unfading, always perpetually True. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. And everyone else is in desperate need of his mercy. In desperate need of his mercy. God alone is independently holy. Now, I want to just, if I can, just take a break for just a second. And just be in the room with you and be together. Let me say that I realize much of what I'm saying right now is stuff that for most of you, not, I know maybe not all of you, but for a lot of you, you have been standing on a hill waving this banner for years, right? No legalism. It's like legalism with the circle and the line through it, right? That's been your banner, And you're about freedom in Christ. And your big struggle is not trying to be righteous before God of your own good deeds. Your struggle has been, how free am I allowed to be? Right? Can I live like this? Can I talk like this? Can I eat this? Can I drink that? Can I have these kinds of friends? Can I have that kind of job? How free am I? And we want to toe up to the line as far as we can go without falling off a cliff presuming on God's grace. But even if you've been waving this banner for years, friends, please have the humility to recognize that every single day of your life, you struggle not to justify yourself before a holy God. To imagine that somehow God would be impressed with your behavior To imagine that somehow you could live a 24-hour period that God would say, look, if this was the only day of your life, you'd be in. You would be in. But unfortunately, there was yesterday and there'll be tomorrow. To think that you can go an hour without struggling in your own heart to justify yourself before God. Please, let's all be honest. Legalism is a struggle in every human heart. So let's keep moving. The Pharisees set themselves up as being men who were holy before God, whose righteous deeds were impressive to God, and they made their own outward appearance the standard of holiness for the people. Maybe you know a person like that, or you did in your past, or maybe you are a person like that. Here's how Jesus described their legalistic teaching, their impossible yoke. Matthew 23:4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Burden, weight, guilt condemnation, fear, obey or die, obey or die. Be holy enough for God or you will be rejected by God. Always loading them down with these burdens and yet standing off at a distance judging them. This is the legalistic yoke. No one wants to wear it. Everyone is crushed by it. And yet if you adopt this kind of thinking that a human being of his or her own effort can be acceptable to God, then you are partaking in, you are advancing the cause of all these lies against your own soul and against the souls of others. But Jesus says, in sharp, glorious contrast, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest. Rest from what? Rest from the insane, impossible, soul-crushing delusion that you are accepted by God based on your own righteous works. It will crush your soul to believe it. To believe that you could be good enough. To believe that you could impress God? Have you forgotten who God is? God who by the word of his mouth, by the, just the will of his being, created the universe and everything that's in it. Who by the power of his own inclination sustains every molecule that exists. That this God would be impressed by a good day, by a person who's trying, by mere human effort, Listen to Galatians chapter 2. Paul was combating the same kind of thinking. There were people who had crept into the church in Galatia, and they were trying to convince them, yes, you need to trust in Christ. Yes, he died for you. But you also have to obey all these laws and customs and ceremonies of the Jewish people. Otherwise, God will reject you. Just to believe in Jesus and trust in what he did for you is not enough. You have to add your own works to Jesus' work. And this is what Does that mean that Christ serves sin if he's willing to accept sinners? He says, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. The law proved to him that he could not obey the law. It was an unbearable weight. It was a crushing burden. It exposed his inability to be holy enough to stand before a holy God. And so he died to it that he might live to God. He died to his effort to be good enough for God so that he might live to God. He became like a child who knows his need rather than being like someone who counts himself as wise and understanding. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, if righteousness were legalistic, if I could, by my own good deeds, be found acceptable before a holy God, his conclusion then Christ died for nothing. Then we must stop proclaiming Christ. We have to stop trusting in what he did on the cross. We have to stop celebrating it. Good Friday and Easter. Who cares if he died and raised from the dead? If I can make my own way to God. If it were true, then he died for nothing. But in fact, he died for something. He died for the fact that I cannot by my own righteousness be acceptable before a holy God. He died in my place. In the place of a sinner. A wicked sinner. A transgressor. A rebel. It was for a great purpose. The purpose of saving our souls that Christ died. So then if we can take this kind of full, orbed understanding of what it is that we're trying to rest from, this attempt at being good enough for God, and instead resting in the righteousness of Christ, credited to us by faith in what he did on the cross for us, then we can hear Jesus saying, come all you who labor to be impressive, all you who labor to keep up appearances, all you who are heavy laden with the yoke of legalism, come to Jesus, find your rest in him. Find your rest in Him. Rest in His righteousness credited to you through faith. Rest in belief that though you could never make your own way to God, God has made a way in Christ. He loves you because He's merciful, not because you were lovable. We are like children before God, in need of Of righteousness given to us like a gift. Righteousness that we could never build on our own. The yoke of Jesus laid across your shoulders is easy. His burden is light because he bears the weight of it for you. Rest in the finished work of Christ. Now you hear this call from Jesus. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, on you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You hear this call from Jesus to come and rest in the truth of the Gospel. Will you obey the call? Will you wholly Trust in the righteousness of Christ to make you acceptable to God and not trust in your own righteousness. Not trust in your good deeds. Not believe that in the ledger of your life there's more positive than negative so God will accept you. As if somehow God is weighing your good deeds on a scale and it's, you're just trying to keep it just tipped towards good. And if you can die tipped towards good, then God will accept you. Trusting in Christ, will you abandon the notion that when you do well, God accepts you, and when you fail, God rejects you? Trusting in Christ, will you abandon this notion? Here's how this plays out for me, if I can just allow you into my own heart, into my own experience, my own battle against this legalism and this crushing burden. When I fail, when I sin, why do I find it harder to pray? Why is it harder for me to come to God and to address Him? Why is that? Do you ever feel that? Are you slower And I don't mean in a humble way, oh God, oh God, but I mean afraid to even admit that God is there. I'm just going to try to finish this day and sleep it off and try to get myself rolling in the right direction. And then once God sees me moving in the right direction, I'll be like, see God, I got it figured out. We're good. Hey God, I love you God, but why is it hard for me to say I love him? Why is it hard for me to come and speak to him? approach this throne of grace when I've sinned. Why? Because there's a little piece of my heart that still thinks I need to be impressive to God to be accepted by him rather than believing that Christ on the cross was acceptable to him in my place and that the resurrected Christ who was sinless, who has ascended on high to the right hand of the Father is interceding for me interceding for me that I might be justified before the Holy God, washed clean by the blood of Christ, brought into his presence and embraced as a son. Because in that moment of guilt, I think I'm condemned for my unrighteousness, but it was never my righteousness God was trusting in. It's the righteousness of Christ credited to me through faith. We're not talking about the moment when you convert from from lost Gentile to saved person. Yes, for sure. There's got to be an awareness of your sin, a turning to Christ, repentance of your sin and trust in him. But every moment of your life must be dripping with gospel truth. Otherwise, you'll fall into the same trap burdened, so heavy laden, the yoke upon your shoulders driving you into the ground. There is rest in remembering and believing in Christ. And there is no rest apart from Him. But the rest you find in Christ is so restful. Such a beautiful place to live. Such a light and easy place to live. There's no other place like it. No place can compare than in Christ. This is what we mean when we say in Christ. We mean in his discipleship, in his family. Wearing his yoke. Trusting in him. Following him. Obeying him. Acceptable because of him. Are good works of righteousness a thing that we don't concern ourselves with? Absolutely not. But they are absolutely not something we trust in for our acceptance before God. Now, This sermon is important to me. I need it. I need what Jesus says here. I need to remind myself, preach it to myself. I want to to wash my family in it and wash all of you in it that you might be free, that you might be at rest, that you might not be striving for God's acceptance, but rather resting in it because of Christ. And I hope you will embrace it as important for your own life. It was important enough to Jesus that He would speak it and by His Spirit preserve it that you might hold it in your lap right now. It would fill your ears, fill this room, fill our souls, that we would celebrate and rejoice and rest. If you are in Christ, there is no more striving for acceptance you are accepted. If you are trusting in your own righteous works and not only, only in the righteousness of Christ, then you do not have the rest of Christ. And you know that. If I I can just... I think you know. I think you know that you don't have that rest. Please, become like a child who knows his need, who knows her need, and who comes and finds rest, finds their needs satisfied in Christ.